Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning. Good to see all of you. If you have a Bible, open it to Daniel chapter 9 is where we are this morning. And we are finishing up this really complex chapter in the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're moving our way through this book This prophetic book of Daniel, written as a word of hope to a people in exile, God's people in exile. As you're finding Daniel chapter 9, what did I do with my glasses? Here we are. There we go. Thank you. Man, a moment of panic there for a second. As you're finding Daniel chapter 9, if you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that Bible as, as our gift to you. We want you to read it. We want you to come back. We're willing to be part of this church. If this church isn't the right fit for you, then we pray that you would find another gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church in our area and that you would be encouraged as you, as a Christian, be in community with God's people. That's what the Bible calls us to do. As you're finding Daniel 9, in just a moment, we're going to explain the context and work through this, this rich text as we're working our way through Daniel this spring and summer let me mention that next week, um, we have a, we'll have a guest with us. You remember Gareth Franks, the missionary pastor in India that Logan filled in for, Logan Copley filled in for uh, a year ago or so, and Gareth was with us a couple, weeks ago, a couple months ago uh, on a Wednesday night and then traveled back with our team that went to minister with him and his wife there in India. Well, Gareth is a missionary in India, and he is originally from South Africa, and his pastor of his church in South Africa is in the United States and will be visiting with us next week. His name is Doug Van Meter, and we have asked Doug to come preach and share with us from God's Word. I'm really looking forward to Doug being with us. He he has pastored a church there in South Africa which is actually in the southern part of the continent of Africa, come to find out. And um, Doug is going to be preaching to us from God's Word and sharing with us about the work of the gospel in the continent of Africa and uh, just really about the Lord's work uh, there through that church. And I'm really encouraged. Now, I don't want you to be disappointed because I know you think South African, cool accent. Doug is actually from America, but he's been in South Africa for like 40 years. So he might have a mixture there, but um, don't be disappointed if he speaks like us. But I'm really excited about Doug coming to share with us next week. And then the following week, we'll pick back up in Daniel chapter 10, finish out Daniel in a couple weeks, and then get into 1 Timothy. Before we read our text in in Daniel chapter 9, uh, I want to just pause and, and have us corporately as a church pray for the tumult and the distress in our nation, uh, in particular that we felt this past week. Earlier, uh, Will mentioned that we will be gathering tonight as a, as a church to pray. We do this regularly every other month on the first Sunday night of the month to pray as a, as a church in our one another meetings to do kind of church business, explain to you some things that are going on. But One of the things that we really want to do in particular in these meetings and in particular tonight is to pray for our nation, to pray for race relations. And, you know, this week, I've been away in California visiting my family, 
Uh, our whole family was there. We got back late Friday night and really hadn't caught up on the news, kind of unplugged for a while, and then caught up late Thursday night and Friday. And my, of course, I think like all of us, my, my stomach was just churning with, with what's going on in our country. And as I thought about what I wanted to say to you briefly before we minister out of God's Word and as we gather tonight, I, I just I felt so so hemmed in and and so constricted by by varying impulses. And one of the frustrations about our cultural climate right now is the moment you say something that would be a word of sort of consolation or encouragement or solidarity with one group, immediately before you can even finish your sentence, people are objecting to it because, well, what about, what about that group? So, so the moment that you express uh, care and concern and you mourn with black Americans who I think legitimately feel, feel pain, then immediately, maybe white evangelicals, well, what about cops? And the moment that you say, well, well we, we legitimately uh, side with these police officers who were gunned down in Dallas and the incredible distress and, and fear that, that our law enforcement officers must have, you, you immediately get lumped with a group that, you, you know, well, what, what about, don't you understand? Do you, so do you see the, and that's part of the pain. So I guess as a pastor, I just want to say that if you are, if you are, black, if you're a dear brother and sister in Christ, and you are black, I, my, my, heart, my heart weeps for you, and I have no idea what it's like to be you, and the fear that you may feel, understandably so, and if you are a law enforcement officer in here, I just, my, I have no idea the stress and the strain that you are under, and there are many in this room who, who keep us safe. And I'm just so thankful for you as well. And I, and I just want to pray for, for our nation and for, for law enforcement officers and for, for minorities of all types. And, and I want us as a church to rise above the moral decay and the, the shouting at one another and for us to be less identified by some temporary earthly demographic and for us to be more identified by our heavenly citizenship in Christ, and for us as a church to be a clarion, clear witness of what it means to be the people of God in a time when our culture is distressed. So I'm going to pray right now for that, and I'm just pleading with you, like, can you come, if you're part of Crosspoint, can you come tonight and can you pray? I mean, there, there's some people that are members of this church that have, like, they've never been to one of our member meetings. And that, I, honestly, that, I, that, that causes me a little bit of, like, heartburn as a pastor. I'm not angry. I'm just, like, what, like, I'm, I'm still sort of basking in or just sort of wrestling with the, the first part of Daniel chapter 9 that we covered two weeks ago about prayer. And just, like, you know, we, we need to pray more as a church, don't we? And I want us to pray. I want us to long for God to do something. And, and I want us to be a people that rise above ideological battles and temporary identifications. And so let's pray right now. And then let's get into God's Word. And then let's gather tonight and pray. And you certainly don't have to be a member to come tonight. We, we want 
We want any to come and pray. Let me pray. Father, we do not want to be more defined by our earthly designations than we are by our heavenly citizenship. We need your help. White people need your help to see their blind spots. We, black people, need your help to see theirs as well. We all have them. Lord, my heart goes out to my brothers and sisters in this room who are ethnic minorities that have grown up in a context that I cannot fully understand. I want to hear them. I want to understand. I want to lament. I want to, I want to mourn with them. Lord, my heart goes out to law enforcement officers in our nation, in this city, and those in this church. I cannot imagine the stress and the strain and the pressure that they are under. Thank you for what they do. Keep them safe. Lord, help us as a people to not lose sight of eternal realities. May we be a countercultural witness amongst anger and fear and frustration. When we are gathered behind closed doors with people of our own ethnic groups, may we speak redemptively about other groups. As Philippians 2 says, may we consider others better than ourselves and may we broaden that definition of others to go beyond just the people that we're comfortable with. May we have a radical and extensive definition of others. May we consider others, all others, better than ourselves. Lord, I pray for the family of the man killed in Baton Rouge, and I pray your, your grace to them. I pray for the family of the man in Minnesota that was killed, and I pray for your grace to them. I pray for the families of these five police officers gunned down in Dallas, and pray for grace there for those that are injured. Pray for their recovery. Lord, we need your help. May we be slow to speak and quick to listen. May you season our speech with grace and humility, and may you saturate it with gospel redemptiveness. And may we be people who are infused with the hope of the gospel. And as Robert read earlier, even as the nations rage, as our nation rages within itself, may we be still and know that you are God. 
Now as we turn our attention to this text, this difficult and complex text, may we not lose our way in it, but may you help us to keep our head above the surface so that we can breathe and ultimately see that you have decreed the end and that you are in utter and complete control and that we triumph with you in Christ. So help us now, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, if you're new or visiting with us today, um, we are in the middle of coming towards the end of a journey through the book of Daniel. Just to catch you up very briefly, the situation in Daniel is that God's people, the nation of Israel, that God formed out of nothing and made into a nation and gave a land to, were a rebellious people, and God warned them that if they continued in their rebellion against Him, that He would give them over to the hands of foreign enemies that would take them captive and drag them away from their promised land, and that He would use these foreign kingdoms as a kind of purifying um, discipline of His people. And that's exactly what has happened to God's people. And in the midst of that captivity, God's people are in exile, outside of the promised land, in a foreign land, in Babylon, and God raises up a man named Daniel to be a prophetic voice to his people while they are in exile. And so Daniel then, in the beginning parts of Daniel, is this great example of what it means to be faithful even though they live in a foreign land. That's the first half of the book. The second half of the book is God giving Daniel visions about the future, about how God will ultimately and certainly triumph over all kingdoms, whether they are currently oppressing God's people or whether they are kingdoms to come. And so in Daniel chapter 9, which we looked at two weeks ago, the first part of it, was Daniel's prayer of lament and confession, where he, even though he was really compared to the rest of his countrymen, a righteous man, lamented about the sin of his own heart and the sin of God's people that that rightly has them in this situation of exile and judgment that they are in as they are at the hands of the Babylonian empire. And now, after the prayer of the first part of Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, God responds to Daniel with an answer to his prayer, starting in verse 20 through 27. Verses 24, let me just let you know this if you're not very familiar with Daniel. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 are some of the most complex and hard-to-understand verses in the entire Bible. They ha- people have been, scholars who are much smarter than me, have been arguing and have different opinions for Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Many different opinions all over the map for centuries. And so I am, and you may be disappointed, I am not going to come down heavy on any particular particular interpretation of what's going on in Daniel chapter 9. Rather, I'm going to outline some things for you, hopefully keep our head above water, 
and give you some truths that I think we can discern from Daniel chapter 9, okay? All right. Is that a deal? Okay, good. (laughs) I'm just trying to pep myself up for this talk here. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. Let's read. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin, we read two weeks ago, and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God and for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, it's the angel Gabriel that we met in Daniel chapter 8, he also is the one in the New Testament that announces the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus. He's got quite a, quite a job as an angel. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now what's significant about that, I don't want you to miss this, we don't have time, whole much time to spend on this portion here, but what's significant is that it, Daniel is marking time by the time of the evening sacrifice. But God's people were not able to even perform the evening sacrifice because they weren't in the Holy Land around the temple at this time. They had been deported to Babylon, and it has been some 65 years since Daniel was a teenager. He's very likely in his mid-80s right now, and he is still, some 65 years later, marking time by the pattern of worship that he remembered doing as a teenager when he was back in the Holy Land presenting the evening sacrifice, even though while in Babylon he was not able to do the evening sacrifice for some 65 years. And yet, when he's thinking about and recording the time of day that the angel appeared to him to give him this answer to his prayer, he marks it by remembering the evening sacrifice that he participated in 65 years ago. I don't even really remember what I preached a month ago. And I know you don't either. (laughs) And (laughs) easy now. (laughs) Easy. I didn't, I mean, you didn't need to go that far. (laughs) Think about, just let's just take in the, I'm going to make up a word here, the Godwardness of Daniel. That the posture of his life. 65 years removed from actually physically being able to participate in the act, he is still thinking in terms of this is the time of day when I posture myself in worship of offering a sacrifice to God as was commanded in the Mosaic Law. (laughs) Even though he wasn't able to do it. Okay, I spent too much time on that. I just found that striking. Verse 22, he made me understand speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. So Daniel prayed, and now Gabriel is answering. A word has gone out of answer to your prayer. I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. What a phrase. If you're in Christ, you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay, let me read verses 24 through 27, some of the most complex verses in the whole Bible. And then we're going to work our way back through it. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be 
seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, that's perfectly clear, isn't it? All right, amen. Let's pray to end the service and go home. Okay, a commentator that I uh, was very helped by wrote this about this passage. He says, what does this all mean? It means that if you are driving home late at night and tune into the prophecy hour on your radio and hear the preacher refer to what is perfectly clear in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy, you know that he hasn't read the text carefully. (laughs) He goes on to say that he gave a lecture on this text and he said, the 70 weeks of Daniel and 20 problems. There are many issues in this text, and I know that many of us have grown up in probably churches that have taught a very definitive view about a very specific timing of what Daniel is saying here. Okay, let's just work our way back through uh, verse 24, and then we will end, we'll culminate with five truths very quickly that I think we should garner from verses 24 through 27. Verse 24 70 weeks, or maybe a better translation would be 77. So what's in view here is uh, 70 groups of time, 70 weeks, or 77. So immediately we know that there is a time of, a period of time in view here that Gabriel is, is giving to Daniel. Now some people are very intent on reading that literally and trying to figure out exactly the literal time that the angel means to communicate by these 77s, or 70 groups of seven years, which would be 490 years. Others that interpret this passage would view it more symbolically and would sort of shy away from trying to be too specific about what's going on there, and we'll get into that in a little bit. So 77s, or seven weeks, whether that's 490 years or a more symbolic period of time, are decreed about your people and your holy city. And here's the purpose of that decree. Here's the purpose of the word. And I think this is the, this is the, the apex of this text. This is why God is giving Gabriel this word to give to Daniel, to encourage him that this will happen. Two, six things that he mentions here. Let's put it up on the screen. Six things to finish the transgression to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. I want all of that. That's good. That is good news for God's people. Now, much has been made about these six things that the angel announces as the purpose for this vision, and this becomes the beginning of part of the controversy of this text. Some people think 
that these six things have already finally completely happened, whereas other people would see these things as not yet happening, but in the future. So let's look at them just very briefly to finish the transgression. I think clearly, obviously, that's speaking about what Jesus will do with sin. And there we see it in the second, there a, a sort of uh, a, really just another way of stating the same thing, that Jesus puts an end to sin and to atone for iniquity. Some people would say, well, Jesus' work on the cross is final and complete, and there's nothing more to be done. And others would agree to that and say, but yes, but there's still sin in the world, so they see this as a future to bring everlasting righteousness. Of course, Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. We'll talk about that in more detail in a moment, but yet we still have to become who we already are, and so they see that as future. What does the fifth and sixth ones mean, to seal both vision and profit? I think this means that the purpose of the Old Testament prophets to give, to give a prophetic utterance, to speak about the Messiah to come, there will come a time when Jesus comes and does his work on the cross where the need for vision and prophetic words are sealed. They're finished. They're done. I think that's what that fifth one means. And then there's much controversy about what the sixth uh, statement means, to anoint a most holy place. Many people think that it is referring that place is not so much a place but a person and it's referring to Jesus' baptism in the Gospels, in the early parts of the Gospels. Others think that it is the anointing of a rebuilt temple at the end times which still needs to take place. I don't think that's the case. But already, I just want to draw out for you the sense that even with this first verse, verse of 24 is a whole bunch of complexity and disagreement about what these mean. But let's not lose the encouragement that is meant to be communicated to God's people. Gabriel is telling Daniel that your people who have been put into exile by God because of their sin will be finally and fully redeemed for their sin because there's coming one who will atone for iniquity and will put it into transgression and to sin and it'll be done. That is encouraging. Okay, verse 25. Let's keep wading into the waters. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. So remember, Jerusalem was destroyed in like 605 BC and a little bit later on into the early to the late 500s BC by the Babylonians when they sacked Jerusalem and took God's people, Daniel included in them, into captivity. So he's saying that the Jerusalem will be restored and built to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks. What does seven weeks mean? Seven times, seven weeks, maybe a period of time, 70 years, 40-something years. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So here we have... Seven weeks and 62 weeks. If you combine seven and 62, you get 69 weeks, which ends up being 483 years. Now, this is where we start to get into the weeds. And let me just wade into them just briefly and then come back out of them because I don't want to confuse you. I already feel like some of you are like, what's happening? I just accepted an invitation to church and I just kind of wanted an encouraging message. Oh, oh God, not coming back here again. I, I Just relax, breathe. What, Dan, what the angel Gabriel is saying here is that there's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. At the time that Daniel receives this vision, 
God's people are still under Babylonian captivity. But God, as a word of hope, even before all of this happened, said to the prophet Isaiah, I am going to give you over to the Babylonians, and you're going to be in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then I'm going to raise up another guy. His name is Cyrus. He's the leader of another group of people called the Persians. And he's going to come and conquer the Babylonians. And when you beat up the bully, you get to take what the bully has in his pocket, right? So if the bully stole your lunch money, and then some other bully comes along and beats up that bully, he gets... The money that the first bully had, right? And so that's what happens. God raises up the Persians to come and conquer the Babylonians. And what the Babylonians had in captivity, which was the Jewish people, the Persians now have. And God is forecasting all of this. He's telling the prophet Isaiah that this is going to happen about 100 years before it even happens. And what Daniel is hearing here from Gabriel is... What God told Isaiah would happen. He said that Babylon is going to be conquered by this new kingdom called Persia. And Persia has this leader named Cyrus who God calls his anointed one. So when we think the word anointed, we tend to think of Jesus, the anointed one. But what's going on in verse 25 is that there is going to be a decree through this anointed one. In other words, God's servant, this foreign pagan king Cyrus, who God is going to raise up to be gracious to God's people and issue a decree so that they can go back to their holy land and rebuild the temple. And that, we know historically, is exactly what happens. God causes the Persians to conquer the Babylonians. He puts a leader in charge of the Persians named Cyrus, who he calls his anointed one, to come and say to the Jewish people who are his captives, I'm going to issue a decree, let you go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and the walls. And at this point in Daniel chapter 25, people that want to figure out exactly timing, they get into all sorts of uh, intricate charts about what the timing of that decree and the rebuilding of the temple is, and we're not going to get into that. I just don't think it would be profitable for us to do. But suffice it to say that God is in complete control and through a prophet a hundred years before it even happened, said this is going to happen. And then through Daniel, as they're approaching the, the actual happening of these events, tells them this is going to happen. And it happens. Okay, verse 26. And after the 62 weeks... An anointed one shall be cut off. Now, this anointed one is very likely not Cyrus, but Jesus, the coming Messiah. An anointed one shall be cut off, very likely referring to his crucifixion on the cross, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war desolations are decreed. And so this, I think, is clearly referring to what happens in the first century. Jesus is crucified on the cross, and the people of the prince who is to come, there's great debate as to what that is. Is that Jesus and his people, or is that 
Roman general Titus and his people come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. And you say, well, how could Jesus and his people destroy the city and the sanctuary? Well, actually, in AD 70, when the temple that has been rebuilt by Cyrus, some hundred years through the decree of Cyrus and God's people, some hundreds of years before, is now destroyed again in AD 70. It was not only destroyed by the Roman general Titus, but it was also destroyed by a civil war of God's people, the Jewish people from within. So it's a very complex verse. What does it mean? I think it's saying that the temple will be destroyed. Whoever is doing the destroying, Jesus has been crucified. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And all of that happens in AD 70. And then verse 27 And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, one more little nuance here and then we're going to wrap it up with five truths because I know you're you're, you're struggling to keep your head above water. Verse 27 is another complex verse where there's much disagreement. Who is he... In verse 27, that shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. The opinions on this are so varied. Let me tell you how complex this passage is. There are some people who think that the he is referring to Jesus, and there are others that think that the he is referring to the Antichrist, right? You can't get on two more polar opposite ends. And these are faithful, Bible-teaching, conservative, Bible-believing people who see the he in verse 27 as polar opposites. Some people think that the he that shall make a covenant with many for one week is speaking of that 70th week as representative symbolically of the whole church age from the resurrection of Jesus until now, meaning that Jesus will make a covenant with many. He will redeem many. They will be in a covenant of grace with him, meaning salvation. Uh, And others think that this is a literal 70th week And there's a huge gap between the 69th and 70th week. And this is referring to the Antichrist. I say all that to say that let's just just be cautious about being very definitive about this passage. Because we have conservative, Bible-believing Christian commentators through the centuries. Some of them believe that this passage is referring to the Antichrist. And others believe it's referring to Jesus. (laughs) Do you guys appreciate that? Is anybody else kind of like, kind of like, Sort of humbled by that? Okay, I I am. Okay. So, now that I've thoroughly confused you, uh, let's look at five truths from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 that I want you to be encouraged by. I want us to lift our head above above the clouds a little bit, and, and I am not in any way saying that there's not great profit in going through every nook and cranny of this text. But friends, that's a difficult thing to do in the context of our Sunday morning gathering. And if you want to sit down with me and be very specific and hear more specifically about what I think every little thing is going on in that verse, I will be glad to do it with much caution and uh, lack of utter certainty as I'm humbled by the witness of uh, church leaders through the centuries who have disagreed with this, th- each other on this. But let me now resurface and give us five truths from Daniel chapter 9. One, I want us to be encouraged that God hears the prayers of his people. Before we get into 
thinking about what do those 70 weeks mean? Are they literal? Are they symbolic? And getting all these charts and timelines out, we're kind of depending on which decree you map this by, it's exactly this many years. Friends, let's not lose the context of this chapter that Daniel is tearing his clothes, lamenting over the sin of his people. And this is God, through the angel Gabriel, answering the prayers of his man, Daniel. And as we are people in modern day America humming through life with our nation in distress, and really, comparatively speaking, compared to the distress of God's people through the ages, and certainly compared to the distress of God's people in Daniel, much less stress that we are in, let's be encouraged that God hears the prayers of his people and he answers them. The question is not, does God hear our prayers and is he able to answer? The question is, do we really pray like Daniel prayed? And that, that's where we have to be chastened and not lose the forest from the trees that God is giving a word of hope and answer to the prayer of his people. And we've talked, we talk often here about how God is sovereign. I believe God is so utterly sovereign. I believe that, that, I believe that tomorrow is completely set in God's economy and time frame. He knows everything. But I also believe that the way he works out his sovereign end is through the willing means of his people who pray. And he hears their prayers. The second truth from Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, is that God, as he's answering their prayer, calls his people to a long, patient obedience in stressful times. Notice there, we could talk about the timing of this, but in verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9, he's talking about how the temple will be rebuilt And then there will be a period of time, 62 weeks, that it shall be built. What does that 62 weeks mean? Is it it 400-something years, or what is it? We're not exactly sure. We we do know that, that there was that period of time there between the rebuilding of the temple and the coming of the Messiah, and that was a troubled time for God's people. So God's people were back in the land. The temple was rebuilt, and yet they were still under stress. They were still troubled. And so even though God is in the midst of answering our prayers, the answer to our prayers rarely, in fact, almost never comes as an immediate deliverance from the current situation. He calls his people to a long, patient obedience in stressful times. And we have mentioned this a lot here. Are we not predisposed as Americans to want things to happen immediately, right? Immediately. I mean, I just think about this. Every time I fly, I think about this. You get in a metal tube. And it lifts off the ground. And in the course of four hours... Four hours. That's 60 minutes times four. That's 240 minutes. In 240 minutes, I can go from San Diego to Atlanta. But God forbid the airline that delays my fight for 15 minutes, right? 
My goodness, what's going on? Delta's so messed up. Because we, we want everything now, right? And we want everything like we want it, right? Burger King spoiled us, right? <laughs> Hamburgers like you like it. Some of you, you don't even now, so everybody does it. But Burger King, for you people under the age of 30, was like the first fast food restaurant to give you your burger like you want it, right? And so we want everything like we want it. And God's answer, God's word of hope, is not immediate deliverance. And so when we gather tonight to pray, we pray in that posture. God, heal our land. God, work out in my heart the complexities and the contradictions. And and we hunker down for a long obedience in the same direction. And because we know that there's a whole lot of work and time that God needs to put in my heart, it should develop in us patience for the world around us because we know that God answers prayer, but it seems through the witness of the centuries and through the witness of his word that he answers them slowly for the sake of the display of his glory. It's not like God is not able to answer prayers immediately, but in his providential wisdom, he answers them slowly over the course of time to put on display his supreme wisdom. The third truth from Daniel chapter 9 is that our enemy's days are numbered. His defeat is certain. Whatever the timing of these weeks means, whether... This 490 years is already complete, or whether this 70th week is out still in the future, and it's referring to the last days that are still to come, like the last, last days, because the Bible talks about even these days that we're in now since the resurrection of Jesus are the last days. Whatever the case, rather than getting too worked up over timelines and charts, We need to step back and take assurance and comfort in the fact that God has numbered the days of our foe. That last, that last, I love this, that last sentence there in verse 27, it says that until, okay, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, in other words, whoever that is, whether that was Titus in AD 70 or whether that's the Antichrist to come, it may symbolize both. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So God is saying, look, he's going to do what he's going to do until I say enough and the decreed end, which I have etched in stone in eternity past, happens. And then a literal expression of the Hebrew in that text is that the predetermined destruction is poured out on the one who troubles God's people. So we should take heart that there is no foe, physical or spiritual, whose days are not numbered, whose defeat is not certain. God has numbered evil's days, and he has decreed their end. He has predetermined destruction for evil, and it will come to pass. Truth number four, and I think this is the the highlight of the text here, is that Jesus ends sin, this Messiah to come, ends sin and brings everlasting righteousness. This one that is being prophesied to Daniel about is coming 
to remember those six things, finish transgression, put an end to sin, atone for iniquity, bring everlasting righteousness, seal up visions and prophets, and anoint a most holy place, which I, I think to mean Christ himself, which then he becomes the temple for his people to dwell in. He is where God dwells. Jesus in sin. This is the point of this text. Not necessarily specificity of time, but the hope that will come in the coming Messiah. And how does Jesus end sin and bring everlasting righteousness? He does this by becoming a man. This is not revealed to Daniel at this time, but we now looking back at the New Testament have the privilege of knowing just how God does this. He becomes a man. God becomes man. And listen closely, friend. If you've been sort of weirded out by all of this prophetic language up to this point, click in at this point because this is what the Bible, this is the central piece of news of the whole Bible. That God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, a triune God, three in one, the creator of all things, created everything. It fell, not surprising God, but according to his overarching providence. He knew that it would happen. And before he even created creation that he knew was going to fall, says that God the Father in eternity past decreed to send the Son so that the Son, God the Son, God in the flesh, would live a human life like us, and where we have all rebelled against God, Jesus, God the Son, would completely obey God perfectly. So while we lost our righteousness, Jesus regains it through his perfect obedient life, and then he lays down his perfect human God life on the cross. And because he is a perfect human, he atones for the sin of all of us. And because he is perfect God, his holiness is enough to satisfy the righteous judgment of God the Father for all who would trust in him. And that's what Jesus does to end sin. He bears the wrath of God. So where God would punish his people in the Old Testament by giving them over to foreign captors, that's just a kind of like a a shadow of the judgment to come for all of humanity. And the greater judgment to come is the final and full wrath that God will pour out on all people for their rebellion. But the good news is, is that he has provided a way to escape that judgment. And that is his son Jesus who lays down his life to bear, to absorb, to take upon himself the wrath of God. That's what Jesus does to end sin. So maybe you grew up in a context where Jesus' work on the cross was merely presented as an act of sacrificial, servant-like love. And certainly it is that. No doubt it is that. But in addition to that, it is, this is the very heart of the gospel and the message of the Bible. Jesus' life and death is a wrath-absorbing, wrath-extinguishing, wrath-satisfying atonement on the cross. He ends sin, removes the wrath and judgment for sin, and turns it into God's favor and grace. So here's what happens on the cross. Jesus takes the punishment for our sin removes it. 
And not only does he remove the punishment for the sin of those who will trust in him, but he now imparts to them, he gives them his righteousness. So all of his obedience to all of his perfection is given to them. He takes the sin of his people and bears the wrath of God, the judgment that should have been theirs, and he brings with him and freely gives. It's so good. I, I giggle in the middle. Of, he gives everlasting righteousness to his people. Friends, if you have been in exile for 70 years because of the wickedness in your own heart and the wickedness of your people, and century after century, you and your people have been unable to obey God, this is a word of hope, and it is the very good news of the gospel. Because we are just like the Jews in captivity. We have disobeyed God. Our fathers have disobeyed God. Our country has disobeyed God. And we are getting the very thing that we deserve. But there is coming a final judgment that is much greater that we cannot bear. And Jesus on the cross has borne that judgment for us and gives righteousness for all those that will put their hope not in themselves, but in Christ and what he has done in his life, death, and resurrection. Friends, that's the point of the text. When Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who has put an end to all my sin. Friends, if you are in Christ, he has put an end to your sin. You may still struggle with that sin, and we're going to finish with that in just a second, but Jesus has taken the punishment for you. And then fifthly and finally, the Christian life is an already not yet tension. What do I mean by this already not yet tension? We'll look at the definitiveness of these six things mentioned in verse 24. He finishes transgression, but I still feel like I got a lot in me. He puts an end to sin. There's still some in my heart, much in my heart. He atones for iniquity. Okay, I can see how he has done that once and for all. He brings everlasting righteousness. I don't feel so righteous. And that's one of the the apparent seeming, seeming, emphasis on the word seeming, paradoxes of the Christian life is that it is lived in this tension where Jesus has already won the victory through his life, death, and resurrection. He has already defeated our foe, but that victory is not yet fully consummated in our lives. So, judgment is satisfied, sin is done with, but yet we are still dealing with it in our lives. It's the process of the Christian life. It is sanctification. And I think that this truth is personified in just one sentence in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. Listen to this verse. Don't flip there, just read it on the screen. Hebrews 10, verse 14. The writer is writing about the effect of Jesus' work on the cross and what it brings about in the life of the Christian. And this sentence, let's remind, because I was just spent a week with my mother who was an English teacher, and I actually had my mom freshman year of high school for English Lit. And I had to write papers for my mom. And my mom likes red pencils, 
Let's just put it that way. If I would have turned this sentence into my mom, it would have come back marked up with red because it is grammatically, tense-wise, like contradictory, unless it's written by the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I'd like to see my mom mark up the Holy Spirit's work. (laughs) Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, meaning Jesus' work on the cross his death, his burial, his resurrection, he has perfected, past tense, for all time, it's definitive, reaching into the future, into eternity forward, those who are being, (laughs) present tense, I can't even get it out, who are being sanctified, do you, under, do you see the, the tense, tenses fighting against each other? Do you see the second half of the sentence is, seems to be fighting against the first half of the sentence? Do you see the present reality of the second half seems to be in tension with the finished all time of the first half of the sentence? And do you see that that is intended by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this? And that is intended to produce in Christians not a laissez-faire attitude. Well, I raised my hand once in VBS at Crosspoint, and so I'm okay with Jesus. And it's not supposed to produce in Christians a sort of doubt about, oh my gosh, I've, I had a bad day. Did I lose my salvation? It's to produce in Christians an assurance that if they are truly trusting in Christ and their life is producing fruit in accord with that, they can be sure that he has, past tense, atoned for their sin, ended transgression, put an end to their sin. And yet, even though that is sure and certain, he is working in them, making them, sanctifying them, into the very thing that they already are. So in Christ, you are becoming, if you're a Christian, who you already are. And that should not produce in you a laziness that allows you to slip into sin or an anxiety that causes you to fear where you are with God every moment but it should produce in you a steadfastness to say that if I am trusting in Christ, he has brought an end to my sin, he's given me his righteousness, and I am now working towards what I already am in Christ. And so I link arms with people around me because, friends, how can you, how can you walk that gospel balance alone? How can you do it on the fringes of a church? How can you do it when nobody knows you? How can you do it? The means by which God sanctifies you progressively over life into what you already are is through the means of his word, his spirit working in you, and his people that he gives us to live life with so that we might encourage one another and spur one another on till that day when we finally and fully rest in him. Friends, that's why, like, that's why we need each other, right? That's why we need to be gracious and humble, and that's why this church needs to be a kind of countercultural witness amongst a, a culture that is insecure and sharp-tongued and wicked and deceitful and sarcastic and mean-spirited. 
We need to be a, a group of people that, that appreciate this tension and it causes in us strength. These are five truths that I see from Daniel chapter 9. I know you wanted charts and definitive times about weeks, but I think this is the point of the text. Let me read to you what we're marching towards, a paragraph from a book called The King and His Beauty by a New Testament scholar that I highly respect. He's a professor at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of Logan Copley's professors. He says in the last paragraph of his book, The King and His Beauty, and this is what we're going to do. This is the the end that God has decreed. He will pour out his predetermined destruction on the desolator. Jesus will come again, atone for all sin, and his people will live with him forever and ever. And he says, of this end certain state of all those that are in Christ, the world will be a new temple and a new garden where God dwells. All that belonged to Adam at the beginning, before he sinned, will be theirs and more. Those in the new creation know what it is like to be separated from fellowship with God. They know what it is to be redeemed from the horrific evil that dwelt in their own hearts. They know and exult in the love of God demonstrated in the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about this. They are safe in the heavenly city with its impregnable walls. The gates of the city can be left open. For there is no enemy within or without who can conquer God's people now. They will see God's face in the person of Jesus Christ. They will see the king in his beauty and they will be glad forever. Whatever Daniel 9 means, it is marching us towards that reality that we will see Jesus in his face and we will be safe from our foes internal and external, forever. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need you. Daniel received this word in chaotic and stressful times, in times of exile and captivity. On a a much smaller scale, we are experiencing our own stressful times. And we need this very same word to encourage us. Lord, I pray that you would lift our eyes above our culture, that you would lift our eyes above even the sin that rages in our own hearts, and that you would encourage us that we would see that you have decreed the end and it is sure and it is certain. And may we see, Lord, that you have put an end to sin and that you bring everlasting righteousness through the work of your Son on the cross and his resurrection. And there are really only two types of people in this room. There aren't black people and white people. There aren't civilians and military or law enforcement. There aren't Americans and Russians and Europeans and British. There are only two types of people in the world. 
those who are in Christ trusting in what he has done and those who are outside of Christ trusting in themselves. This word is clear that for those that are trusting in the Messiah to come who has come, that you will put an end to their sin, that you will atone for their sin and that you will give everlasting righteousness. And it's clear that for those who are not trusting in you, that are not trusting in Christ's work, that the judgment that you poured out on Christ on the cross that he satisfied and removed for his people will be poured out on the person who's not in him. And so God, I pray that if there's people in this room who are not trusting in what your son has done to end sin and bring righteousness, that this morning, amidst, I'm sure, what are a hundred other questions, that you would give them faith, that you would give them a gift of repentance, which means that they would turn from trusting in themselves and put their hope in you, and that they would have their sin ended and righteousness delivered to them through their faith and trust in Jesus. Lord, give that gift liberally right now, I pray, for my friends that are in this room who are not trusting in Jesus. And friend, if that is you, you don't need to repeat a prayer after me or sign any card. Right now, I'm encouraging you, I plead with you to look away from yourself and to look to God and say, Father, I trust what Jesus has done for me. I put my hope in his work and not mine. I believe. Do that even now. And if you're praying that prayer, I encourage you to come to find a pastor, to find a mature Christian that you know that can pray with you and encourage you before you leave this room. Even in just a moment when the band comes back to play, find a pastor, a Christian friend to pray with. You can come down front. We'll be down front. Find me or one of the other brothers and and pray and ask God to end your sin and give you righteousness through the work of his son. Father, for the rest of us, may we be girded with strength from this text because we know that you have decreed the end and may it produce in us an otherworldly confidence in stressful times. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.